the McConnell family who are going to lead us in the reading of God's word. Please stand for the lesson from the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. From Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, endeavors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteousness decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again, everyone. Well, we're going to begin today the way that we begin every week, by talking more directly to the children among us. And so, kids, we're going to start off with one of the many ways why children are superior to adults. Now, you might be able to think of many different reasons, but the one that I want to talk about today is that children are superior to adults in that they're unwilling to accept anything less than first principles. What we've talked about today is first principles, and if you're not familiar with this concept, a principle, not like the principle that you have at school, but the principle is a statement or a belief about what is true. And according to Aristotle, this very famous Greek philosopher, a first principle is the first basis from which a thing is known, meaning it's the very core assumption that cannot be deduced any further. Now, it's kind of abstract, so I'll give an example of this. Um, are any of you children among us why children? Meaning, you love to ask the question, why? Maybe when you were younger, you're not satisfied with the simplistic pat answer, but anytime your parents answer questions, then you ask, why? For, for example, if your parent tells you, don't eat that food off the ground, what do you say? Why? Well, because it's not sanitary. Thank you. Why? Well, maybe there's germs. There's germs that you can't see. And if you put these into your body, they may make you sick. Why? Right? And I think this is the point at which many of us as parents, we start, like, you know, grasping for straws. We don't know how to respond, but maybe you say something like, well, because humans and germs are locked in eternal battle for survival. And that's the way that germs have successfully reproduced thus far. And then again, why? Eventually you say, because that's how God... It's really loud. Eventually you say, that's how God created it. Well, why? Why did God create it that way? Because that's just the way that God wanted to do it. Why? Well, just because. The first principle is just because. You see, kids are naturally hardwired and inclined to understand the world based on first principles. Another al- analogy that might help us to understand first principles is the difference between a cook and a chef. Now, I'm neither a cook nor a chef, so this could be completely off base. But as I understand it, both a cook and a chef can make delicious meals. The difference is a cook follows a recipe, whereas a chef doesn't need a recipe at all. They can make their own recipes. So, for example, thankfully this wasn't the case, but if I had been responsible for making the Thanksgiving turkey for our family, but if I started with a ham, let's say I want to make a turkey, but all I have is a ham. 
if I follow the instructions perfectly in making a turkey, will we end up with a turkey for Thanksgiving in a happy family? No. No, because you started with a ham. Your first principle was wrong. If the first principles are wrong, then everything else that follows is going to be wrong. And that's what we'll be talking about today in our sermon, First Principles. So please pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you're the giver of all good gifts, that every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father above. As we spent this past week reflecting on the many reasons why we had to be thankful, I pray that you would stir our hearts and our affections toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him more clearly this morning. Help us to be more grounded in the first principles that you've given us in your word and in your created order. And I pray that you might align our hearts more closely to your will in order that we might please you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So that for the Advent season, this is the first, season, first Sunday of Advent, and for the Advent season, we are going to be having a sermon series based on our statement of faith. So did everybody get a copy of our statement of faith? If you do not have a copy, I have a very helpful young gentleman who will go around and pass you a copy of our statement of faith. But the reason why I began speaking to our children about first principles is because you should think of our statement of faith as our statement of our church's first principles. The statement of faith includes the most important and fundamental convictions that we have about the nature of reality that determine the meaning and direction of our life and community of faith. So the question is, why does Terrytown Christian Church exist? You're holding it right in your hands. Because of these things. Because these things are true. Why do you gather and participate so faithfully every Sunday? Why are you so generous giving of all of your time and your resources, your hard-earned money? Why? Because of what you hold in your hands. Our statement of faith. Because these things are true. All of our habits and our practices, all of our events, all of our ministries, the way that we conduct ourselves within the church, among ourselves, the way that we conduct ourselves outside of the church as a witness to the world, all of these things flow out from the beliefs that are set forth in our statement of faith, our statement of first principles. And I'm really excited to preach through it. So for the next five weeks, or this week and the next four weeks, if you look on your statement of faith, you'll notice that it's divided into five sections. Each sermon will talk about one of those sections. And I'm very excited because even though these are the basics of the faith, these basics of the faith are so rich, so glorious, so nourishing to our faith. So this morning, we're beginning with the very first section. And it reads this, We believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, who creates us, male and female, in his image. There's three parts to this that we're going to talk about this morning. Number one, God the Father, the Almighty. Number two, the maker of heaven and earth. And number three, the one who creates us, male and female, in his image. So first, God the Father Almighty. It's very important that we begin our statement with God. Now, that might seem like an obvious place to begin. But if you look closely, notice that the first three sections of our statement of faith, they all begin with God. But we're making very specific claims about God. Each section begins with God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
This is intentional because we are beginning with God first and foremost, and we're affirming that this God that we gather together to worship is a Trinitarian God. God exists as a Trinity in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes you might hear Judaism, Christianity, and Islam kind of lumped together as maybe like these are three Abrahamic religions, right? All of these religions find their origin in this man, Abraham. Or maybe you hear they're all like monotheistic faiths. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they all share belief in one God. But that's based on a misunderstanding of who the Christian God is. You see, the Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament, the Yahweh of Judaism, and the Allah, which is the Muslim name for God, the Allah of Islam, they are categorically different than the Christian God of the Old and the New Testaments. Modern Judaism and Islam, as well as many other groups, such as Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these groups, they do not recognize God as Trinitarian, which is fundamental for Christians. It's not an optional belief. There's this creed from the 3rd century A.D., So, almost 2,000 years ago. It's called the Athanasian Creed. And it says this. We, that is Christians, we must worship the Trinity in their unity. And their unity in the Trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. They're saying this is a core belief. Even 2,000 years ago of Christianity that God exists as one in three persons. Anyone who desires to be saved must worship God as a Trinitarian God because God's Trinitarian nature is fundamental to who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. And so if you've been in church for any amount of time, you might be familiar with this term Trinity. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've kind of heard of it, don't really understand what it means. Maybe you're confused by it. If you are, if that describes you, I encourage you to very listen closely at this next part. We're starting with this idea of God as the Trinity because it's fundamental to the Christian faith. Others, some people might start with the first principle that goes something like this. God is love. For many, the first principle of their faith is that God is love. And that's true. We don't want to deny that. But it's all about the details. How do you define love? Oftentimes, the phrase God is love is vague enough that it's used to justify an uncritical acceptance of any and all human behavior. You see, you can say God is love in a way that you're really saying, I am loved. It sounds like you're making a claim about God, saying he is love, but really the reason you're doing that is because you want to affirm yourself in saying, I am loved, taking the focus away from God and putting it upon yourself. In contrast, we assert that God is Trinitarian love, meaning it's a very specific love. God's love is not abstract. At its heart, this is what the Trinity is. The Trinity is a father loving his son eternally. The Trinity is God loving God the Father, eternally loving God the Son by the Holy Spirit, and everything that God does flows out of the love that he has for his son. Everything that God the Father does, including his love for us, is an overflow or an outpouring of his love that he has for his son. 
So we must approach all things in our Christian faith starting from this Trinitarian foundation and perspective, including the fact that God, the Trinitarian God, is the creator of all things. Which brings us to our second point. God is the maker of heaven and earth. One of the most important first principles that you must have is your answer to this question. I want you to think deeply about this. This is one of those questions that I think kids often ask. Why is there something other than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? What is the reason why everything exists? In our passage that the McConnells read for us in Romans 1, it tells us that there's really only two answers to this question. And I'm going to reread parts of that section for us. Starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the letter to the Romans is that God makes himself known to people in the created order, in everything that has been made. It's clear to everybody, but because of their unrighteousness, people suppress the truth of God's existence, his divine nature and eternal power, and they reject him. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. And this is a really important term for us, and so I want you to remember this. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is the really key verse for us this morning, verse 25. Because the reason God gives them up is because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, the way you answer this question, why is there something rather than nothing, it's going to shape and determine everything about the way in which you live your life. And according to Romans 1, there's only two options. You either worship the creature the things that God has made, or you worship the creator, the one who made all things. One author puts it this way. Either the transcendent creator, that is the one God in the unending interpersonal life and love of the Trinity, either that God is at the origin of everything and he creates it and he sustains it, or the universe itself. The universe itself in all its seeming variety, is all there is. You understand how there's only two options? You either believe that God, Trinitarian God, made all things, he's separate and apart from his creation, or you believe that somehow the physical world created itself. Whether you believe that everything in the universe is the product of chance and randomness, or you believe that everything in the universe, including us, is the product of a loving Trinitarian God, will make all the difference in your life. In Paul's words, either you will serve and worship the creation or the creature, or you'll serve and worship the creator. And what our passage in Romans 1 tells us is that you should not be surprised, we should not be surprised, 
when people reject God as creator and believe or exchange the truth of God for a lie. Paul says people have always been exchanging the truth about God, who he is and what he has done, for the lie. And I believe the lie, that's capital L, lie, has been the same lie from the very beginning. It's the very first lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. And he said, you know what? The reason why God doesn't want you to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is because he's trying to hold you back. He doesn't know what's best for you. He doesn't want what's best for you. What God wants is to be God and to hold you down. You should be like God. That's what the serpent says. You should eat from the fruit of the tree so that you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's the lie. The lie is that you can and should be your own God. That you can and should make decisions and choices about what is good and evil, about what is right and wrong, about what's the best way to live your life. That's the lie. And this lie is expressed in different ways in every cultural moment. So we create many little lies that are all reflected of this big lie. And I have a few of us, or a few little lies that we tell ourselves that I'd like to share this morning. One lie is that you are responsible for making your own meaning and your own purpose in life. You are responsible for making your own meaning and your own purpose in life. If you're familiar with Francis Schaeffer, he was a Christian apologist in the 20th century. But he said this thing, he said, personal meaning cannot arise from impersonal means. Personal meaning, as meaning for life, it can never arrive out of an impersonal means. Meaning that if you start with something like the Big Bang, if that's the fundamental first principle from which you believe is the nature and origin of the universe, if you start with something impersonal like the Big Bang that proceeds with an impersonal process of randomness and chance, then the universe and life within it has no inherent meaning. Therefore, you, it's up to you to figure it out for yourself. A lie is that life has no inherent meaning and that you're responsible for creating your own identity and making your own meaning apart from God. Another lie is that what we call God is just a projection of society's values and aspirations. You might not be familiar with the name Emile Durkheim. Anybody? Durkheim. He is one of the most important people in the 20th century, often called the father of modern sociology. What Durkheim did is he popularized this idea that what we call God is just a projection of us as a society or a community onto an external figure. What this means is that man creates God for societal good. Right? Our community requires some sort of shared purpose, some sort of shared meaning, and so we create a God that is for the good of our community rather than the biblical truth that God creates humanity for his glory. The problem with this view is that if we collectively determine that God or the idea of God is no longer useful for us, it's no longer for the societal good, then the idea of God is easily discarded or abandoned. It's a lie. But isn't that the point at which we have largely arrived at 
at our time today. This lie that the notion of God is outdated and outmoded, frankly irrelevant and unnecessary. The lie is that we've advanced past this idea of God. A lie is that we don't need God anymore. In an even more extreme example, a lie is that belief in God is actually the root of bigotry, injustice, and oppression. And it's a social evil that must be eradicated. The great lie, you see the lie that I can and should be my own God, is expressed in all these little lies in so many other ways in which we abandon God's truth as revealed in Scripture for all of these other lies that place us in the place of God. There's only one solution for all these little lies and the great lie, and that's the truth of God. Truth with a capital T. The fact that there is a God, that he exists as a Trinitarian Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he created all things. God does not exist for your sake, but you exist for God's sake. If you embrace this understanding of creation, not that you have to make your own meaning in life, but that because you were created by God for a purpose, to know him, to glorify him, to enjoy him, then you don't have to live according to the culture's lies. And the remainder of our passage in Romans 1 describes what happens when we collectively reject God's created order and purpose for our lives. So first we acknowledge that God is a Trinitarian God. Secondly, this Trinitarian God created all things. And lastly, this God creates us male and female in his image. The consequences of abandoning the truth for the lie, the great lie and the many little lies associated with it, are very clear according to Romans chapter 1. This is verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. They gave them, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See, Romans 1 declares that divine punishment for our sin is God giving you up. It's God handing you over so that you can experience the natural consequences for disobedience. He allows you to experience the consequences of your rebellion against his moral will and his created order. It's significant to note here that Paul highlights homosexuality in verses 26 through 27, not because it's any worse sin than the list that follows. That's important to note. But because it's a challenge to the created order of male and female being created in God's image for one another. It's especially important to note also that the practices presented here are not worthy, merely sins worthy of condemnation, but rather they're symptoms of a rejection of God's created order and authority. That's what Paul's trying to say here. The way in which we live our lives is an expression 
of how we've already rejected the goodness of God's created order and his will for our lives. In a society that rejects God's created order has little recourse to present, prevent further moral and spiritual decline, as we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And really, this is kind of the climax of this section. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the final indicator of creature worship, right, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, the final indicator that you're worshiping the creature rather than the creator is not immoral, ethical behavior, unethical behavior. The final true indicator of creature worship is when immoral or unethical behavior is given tacit approval and sometimes even praise. You see, the problem with all of our most contentious contemporary debates, right? think about what are the things that people are just screaming about toward, to each other, past each other all the time? The right to protect and preserve life for the right, versus the right to have an abortion? Questions about the fluidity of gender and sexuality? The problem with all of these debates is that they rarely, if ever, operate on the basis of first principles. And if you don't agree on the same first principles, then in a very real sense, you cannot have a productive discussion. G.K. Chesterton said this very thing. He said, different first principles make debate impossible. If you don't believe that there's a Trinitarian God who created the heaven and the earth and made humans in their image, male and female, as your first principles, then it'll be very hard to come to any sort of consensus on all of these questions that people disagree and argue about today. So what then is the church to do? What then are we who ascribe to this statement of faith, the statement of first principles to do? And I would argue that today is a time for Christian courage. But really, it's a courage not to do anything more than to stand for and defend the first principles of our faith, traditional, orthodox, historic Christianity. As we end, I think we we have to end this morning, as we attempt to do every Sunday morning, with gospel hope. Because that's why we're here this morning. Because all of us need the gospel of God's free grace for us in Jesus Christ. We need gospel hope for those who have been given over. But we must resist the temptation to read Romans 1 as if it were about some other people out there. Isn't that our tendency? You read this litany of sins and moral failings, and you think about all the people out there who are like that. You think about our society or our culture that's degrading and what hope there is. Yet all of us in here, all of us here in some way, we have all exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Whether it's the big lie or the hundred little lies that we tell ourselves. All of us have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. All of us has put ourselves in the place of God. All of us have been given over by God. All of us have experienced the consequences of our sinful patterns and rebellion against God and his creative order. What then is our gospel hope? The gospel hope is that even though God has given people over, 
He gave them over to a debased mind. He gave them over to do things to which not, should not be done. Even though God has given people over, according to Romans 1, the Bible tells us that God has not given up. God has not given up on you. And that is especially what we celebrate during this Advent and Christmas season. We celebrate the fact that even though God has given us over in our sin, he has not given up on us. And the way that we know God hasn't given up on us is that he gave of himself completely. See, the mystery of the incarnation, God in the flesh, is that this Trinitarian God, the creator of all things, heavens and earth, the one who made us in his image, the mystery of the incarnation is that this God has entered into his creation, the ones who have rejected him, the ones who worship the creature rather than the creator, the ones who exchange the truth for a lie. God has entered into this world and he's given up his son for us. And what does the Bible say about his son? Galatians 2.20. It says, I, that is Christians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because Jesus loved me and he gave himself up for me. You see how that works? God has given us up in our sin to experience the consequences of our rebellion against God, but he did not leave us alone. He did not give up on you. He did not give up on you because he gave of himself completely in the form of his son, who he too gave of himself for your good and for your salvation. That is the gospel hope that we have, and that is the gospel hope for a world so in need of the truth, so in need of these first principles. And so as we look these next upcoming weeks about our statement of faith, the statement of the first principles, always be reminded that these are for your good, for your salvation, and for the good of the world that we hope to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, who creates us male and female in his image. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. God, we we come before you this morning, we ask for wisdom. We ask for your wisdom to discern between the truth and the lie. We admit that we're so good at dressing up lies in the guise of the truth. We're so good at justifying our own actions and our behaviors. We're easily misled. And so we pray, Lord, that we, would, our, we, our church, would be founded upon the truth of the gospel as revealed in your holy scriptures. We pray that we would see Christ clearly in order that we might follow after him. I pray that you would help us to base the life of our church on the truth of your word, and that as we do so, that we would find true life and share it with those around us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.